Morning, everyone. Morning. And a very good morning to all of those who have been joining us for some time now, our friends throughout the United States and our friends throughout the world. We love you very much. And thank you for saying hello to us, letting us know your prayer requests and needs from time to time. And thank you for joining us for the exposition of God's Word. And we rejoice for those of you who have had healing and answers for prayer. And we pray for all of you folks who are going through distress and trials and difficulties at this time. Would you all stand please to honor the reading of the Word of the Lord. Our text in the Gospel of John this morning. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 19. We will begin today an incident which we traditionally refer to as the cleansing of the temple. And we will uh, begin the exposition of that passage today and we will we'll conclude it next week. I have entitled the first half, part one, this morning's message, My Father's House. A direct quote, of course, from Jesus himself. Gospel of John chapter 2, verses 12 to 19. After this, that is, after the wedding in Cana, which we explored last week. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers, you can include sisters as well, and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Before I pray over the exposition of Scripture this morning, let me read two passages from the Old Testament for you. First of all, Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69, which is a Messianic psalm written by David. Psalm 69, verse 9 states, For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. Now let me read to you from the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. If you want to join me there. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts, and who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, 
and like fuller's soap, and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, those who serve in the temple, and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. I will state this again as we actually unpack, explain, teach the truth of the passage. But at this event, and I believe this event actually happens once in Jesus' life, not twice. But on the day, the two days that He purifies the temple, Psalm 69 verse 9 and Malachi 3 verses 1 to 3 are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Himself and His actions in the temple. And the Apostle John in this text tells us that by the Spirit of God, he and the other disciples were made aware of just that fact. That Jesus cleansing the temple or clearing the temple fulfills those two messianic passages in Scripture. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for those who are gathered here in person to hear you speak to them out of your word and to translate your words into action in and over our lives. We pray for the proclamation of your word that goes out throughout this community, throughout our country, and throughout the world. And we pray first of all for the spiritual well-being and yes, the physical well-being of those who are watching and listening this day and throughout the week and in the weeks and months to come. Bless them, open their minds and hearts to receive the truth of your word and apply, appropriate the truth of your word in and over their lives as well. And we thank you for those who communicate with us and let us know that the Spirit of God is speaking to them through your word, through our humble efforts here. Bless them, heal them, keep them safe from your enemies, their enemies. Bless and protect them and prosper them in every way that you see fit. And may the proclamation of your word be a true blessing and power, source of power and strength and life to and for their souls and the souls of everyone here. May the meditations of our, all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. You who every day we are reminded, you are our only hope. And you are more than hope enough for one and for all. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. So now after the first of the signs, the Simeon. According to John, these events which in and of themselves point to the true identity and mission of Jesus, the Word made flesh. The first of the signs being, of course, the wedding at Cana, which we explored last week. Jesus has a brief stay, a brief respite in Capernaum with his family and friends, and that must have been a very treasured time indeed for all of them. And next, very early on in his ministry, yes, as you would expect, the Messiah should arrive in the capital city and in the temple, the most sacred place of the old covenant people, the holy place upon earth where God in His localized presence is said to dwell with His people. Yes, Jesus is going to go there next, according to John. He's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the temple for the Passover. And how magnificent is that? With the arrival of Jesus, the Word made flesh, these are the most meaningful Passovers in all of history. Passover points to Jesus Himself. Yes, it is an event which commemorates a tremendous event in history, God rescuing His covenant people from the evil empire of Egypt at that time. And Passover does to this day, for practitioners of Judaism, represent their freedom from the evil Pharaoh, from the evil empire. 
God taking his covenant people out of slavery and making them a nation. However, at the heart and core of that event is the message of the Messiah, the message of the Word made flesh, the message of the ultimate Passover lamb provided by God, who according to John the baptizer will take away the sins of the world, take away the sins of not only members of the old covenant people, but will offer salvation and the cleansing of sin for people who will be made up of one body that will be made up of those from all ethnicities the entire world over. So how significant are those Passovers when he who is the very meaning and purpose of Passover shows up, arrives in the flesh? And Jesus will have some very, very important and significant and meaningful work to do there in Jerusalem and in the temple. And I, I do believe along with other, uh, I'm convinced by those Bible scholars and historians who believe that this event, which we traditionally call Jesus cleansing the temple, I believe that happened twice, not once. Sometimes when you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you are given the impression that this event occurred only once towards the end of Jesus' ministry, that fateful day which we call the triumphal entry. And he enters Jerusalem and goes immediately to the temple and purges the temple there. I think it happened twice. Okay? Um, not just at the end of his ministry is recorded in the other Gospels again, and I don't think that there's any contradiction here. And I don't think John is purposefully rearranging the chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus in his Gospel. I think that if you, on very close research and study and inspection, many, and I believe they rightfully have come to the conclusion that Jesus cleansed the temple two times. Twice in his ministry, not only once. He did so here at the beginning of his ministry, and he will do so again towards the end of his ministry. Uh, the start of the most fateful week in history that we traditionally call Passion Week. Um, the fact that he did this twice explains the hatred of his enemies to an appreciable degree. I think the fact that Jesus did this twice helps to explain to a degree, the animosity, the fear, the hatred that he receives and that he encounters from the corrupt religious and political establishment of his day. So in Cana, if you remember from last week, this is interesting. Jesus arrives to rescue. He arrives to save in Cana at this family wedding. But here in Jerusalem itself, the capital city, the city of the great king, the capital of the Messianic King, the Jewish Temple, the place where God is to meet with His people, Jesus arrives there in order to cleanse, in order to judge, in order to purge, in order to confront. And at this greatest of all the Old Covenant religious observances, certainly one of the greatest ones of all, the Passover, which has always pointed to Jesus' very person and His work, when he, the Messiah, arrives. And Jesus, almost doubtless, or almost needless to say, in his early life growing up, he had likely attended numerous Passover celebrations in Jerusalem with his family. But from now on, from these Passovers onward until the completion of his mission, everything's going to change. All of these Passovers are going to be different now. He is now on his mission, the last leg of his journey in his first advent, to complete his mission, his atoning work. 
the very reason that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and entered this world in the first place by divine plan and decree. All Passovers point to His accomplished mission. He who is the Lamb of God, remember John the Baptizer's announcement in chapter 1, verse 29. So the Passovers for the next few years will be the most significant ones in history, as I stated a moment before. And he who is the very meaning of the Passover has arrived on mission from his Father. And this Passover is going to be a tumult when he arrives and literally shakes things up in a way which no one at that time probably anticipated or expected. Verse 12, after this, a transition verse, after this, after the wedding at Cana, after he begins to reveal himself by the beginning of the signs, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brothers, or brothers and sisters, and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. So after this, if you notice, whatever your tra uh, translation into English is, this is a very common phrase in John's Gospel, after this or something similar. It occurs numerous times in John's Gospel to connect the narratives to connect the events, the recorded events of Jesus' life and ministry. So Jesus travels back to Capernaum. He and the folks of his generation would have called it in Hebrew slash Aramaic, Kafurnahum. It means the hometown of Nahum. It is believed that Capernaum was the birthplace, the hometown of the Old Testament prophet Nahum. And Capernaum, if you remember uh, from the other Gospels, becomes something of a home away from Nazareth. It seems to be something of his home base in Galilee for a while after he leaves his hometown of Nazareth. And he has his family with him, probably his whole family at this time. The text says his mother and his brothers. Actually, the word there in Greek is adolfoi, which you could many, many times in many contexts translate as brothers and sisters, inclusive of male and female. So probably Jesus at this time has the whole family in tow, his mother and his half-brothers and sisters and his new disciples. How many? Probably half a dozen. We don't think all the twelve are assembled at this time. We don't really know. But at least probably half of them or more. And they go down to Capernaum. I gave you the locations, the possible locations for Cana or Cana last week. All of the most likely ones are about 16 miles or so away from Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So not a long walk. It would just be to these folks a good stretch of the legs, as the Irish say. And when the text says that they go, they go down there, that's quite literally true. That's not just a colloquial expression. A journey from Cana up in the hill country of Galilee to Capernaum down on the shores of the Sea of Galilee would be literally a trip downwards in elevation. So the wedding at Cana probably took place at about late February, I would say actually March of AD 27 or 28. And this is if you agree with those scholars who argue for the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ to be occurring in A.D. 30. Now sometime in Bible, on a Tuesday night Bible study, I, I might try to take a few weeks and give you a survey or a background of the Old Testament. There are two major dates that historians argue for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Most of them side or settle with A.D. 30. But some have a, very good, a few very good arguments for A.D. 33. So presuming we go with the A.D. 30 date, put this in perspective with history for you, this is taking place according to our calendar, probably in the, about the month of March, going to April of A.D. 27, 28. Jesus begins his ministry in the spring, in the springtime. And so Jesus in March performs the first of his signs at Cana, 
And he then t- uh, took with him uh, there to stay a few days in Capernaum, his friends and his family. By the way, we all know a number of the disciples. Capernaum's their hometown. So he's probably staying with them. Likely it's not Simon Peter and his family. And they're probably staying there for a while to rest up from being out there on the edge of the wilderness where John was. Then they go to Cana. Then they travel back to Capernaum probably to rest up a little while and to prepare to go to the Passover in Jerusalem, which is going to be a big journey. Expensive, arduous, even for folks in Palestine, not to mention the tens of thousands of Jews scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the Mediterranean world, who are going to be traveling for Passover. And who knows? Maybe Jesus began to explain what happened at that wedding a few days back. What thought all that meant? What that pointed to? So now it's time to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to observe Passover. Probably now early April. Verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover, of course, is very significant, very meaningful. This observance of the Jewish people leaving Egypt. I probably don't need to explain this to you, but somebody out there might need this explanation. The original Passover was to commemorate God's judgment over a blasphemous evil empire. It was also represented the night that would begin the final episode of freeing his old covenant people who would bring the Messiah into the world centuries later. He would free them from this evil empire to be his people and they were to be a light to the whole world in preaching and teaching the truth and living the truth of the one true living God. And that night, you remember, a spotless, perfect lamb to cover them to cover their sins, their flaws, their imperfections as human beings. It had to be sacrificed. And that blood was smeared on the lintel of the door so that when the judgment angel, the avenging angel, came to judge this evil empire, that angel, that instrument of judgment, would see the blood of that lamb covering, so to speak, that house and those in that house, and the judgment of God would pass over them. Folks, that event not only points to a historical event that actually happened in ancient times, the book of Exodus, but it also points to the final judgment at the end of human history as we know it. When this evil world will be judged once and for all. And when those who are under the blood of the Lamb, the Messiah, the Word made flesh, the ultimate sacrificial Lamb provided by God for the sins of the world, At that judgment, at the end of history, all of those who are under the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, the judgment of God will what? Pass over them. In the end, all human beings receive one of two things from the hands of God. Mercy or justice. Nobody receives injustice from the hands of God. Nobody. You either receive mercy, which we don't deserve, and we're given anyway, that makes it mercy. Or we receive justice, which we all deserve. And so all of these Passovers point to that Exodus, but they point to the coming of the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of people from all over the world, so that at the final judgment, they will be covered in the blood of Jesus the Lamb, and the judgment of God will pass over them. Now here in verse 13, when, when John says the Jews, usually that expression is a pejorative. It refers to Jesus' enemies, but here it does not. And I need to point that out to you. 
When Jesus says the Jews, the Passover of the Jews, he simply means, yes, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. And this observance, again, points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. And Jesus, it's interesting, um, I like to give you details. I appreciate your patience in me giving you details. When John says, went up to Jerusalem, that's not a colloquial expression either. That is literally true. Um, they are literally traveling up in elevation. I think Sea of Galilee is about 680 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And at that time in particular, when you traveled up to Jerusalem, yet yeah, you were literally in places traveling up to Jerusalem. And in some places in the hill country of Judea, it, it was arduous. It, it could be a potentially dangerous trip. And of course, as you may or may not know, every male Jew from the age of 12 years old and upwards is expected to do their level best to attend the Passover. Now at this time, the Jewish people are in the, di the diaspora, the dispersion. Tens of thousands of Jews are scattered all over the Mediterranean world, all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire. And at this time, there were certain extenuating circumstances which could excuse a Jewish male from attending the Passover in Jerusalem. And can you imagine how difficult this was in the first century A.D. for some of these people to travel hundreds of miles by foot or by animal or by water? and the expense and the dangers that they would undergo in traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles sometimes to get there. Nevertheless, sometimes there were extenuating circumstances, but nevertheless, every male Jew between, from the age of 12 upwards was expected to do their best to attend. So as you can imagine, at Passover time, the population of Jerusalem would swell many times its number. You're talking tens and tens of thousands of extra bodies all swarming into Jerusalem and the area around for the Passover. Now you may or may not know historically on the 10th of the month of Abib or Nisan by their calendar which is by our calendar March and April. On the 10th of that month a perfect spotless lamb is to be chosen by a family, by the head of the family, selected to sacrifice to God and on the 14th day of that month and this is significant, between the hours of 3 in the afternoon and 6 o'clock in the evening, those sacrifices were to be offered to God. And that very night, the famed Passover meal was to be held, was to be observed. Verse 14, And he, that is Jesus, found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. He found in the temple, in the temple, not at the temple, not around the temple, not near the temple. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated. Now, there was a time when all of the livestock who were to be offered as sacrifices were kept across the Kidron Valley over on the Mount of Olives. Not anymore. All of that's right in the temple. There was a time when the, money when the money changers who had to exchange currency from all these provinces of the Greco-Roman world into temple-approved currency, there was a time when they were doing all that in the marketplace, in the squares, and in the streets, and in the Teropian Valley, outside of the temple. Not anymore. They're inside the temple doing this. 
And he found in the temple. Let me pick this apart for you because this is very important. In the remainder of this passage, John is going to use both of the Koine Greek words for temple. One word is hieron, which he uses right here. And the other word, which is naos, which Jesus will use a little bit later. The word for temple that John uses here, Jesus found in the temple, is hieron. And I apologize to you folks watching. We have a visual here from a beautiful model in Jerusalem at the Holy Land Hotel, which has been there for many, many years. It's an absolutely magnificent uh, model, an enormous model of, uh, and still to this day, quite historically accurate, of what first century Jerusalem was like at the time of Christ and the Apostles. On a screen here, we have this magnificent model of the temple. Now, when John says hieron, hieron means this. It does not mean that beautiful, enormous structure in the very center which contained the holy place and the most holy place. That is the sanctuary. That is the sanctum sanctorum the place where the, the Holy of Holies, the place where the localized presence of God was expected and believed to dwell with the Jewish people. That's not what John is referring to when he uses the word hieron. Hieron is a Greek word which means the entire temple complex, pagan or Jewish. The entire property upon which a temple sits. That is, the sanctuary temple itself where the god or goddess was believed to dwell and the courtyard that surrounded it, and all the dependency buildings that surrounded the temple. Does that make sense? And that's the word that John is using here. You see there the royal stoa, which is to the left, a magnificent structure that was used for various purposes. And you see the large open spaces, like a, a, literally a large open square area inside the temple complex. That is the court of the Gentiles, where Gentile people by the thousands could go. And Gentile people were expected to go there and seek the one true living God of the Jews and expect to be able to pray and seek the God of the Jews, the one true living God. And there they should be expected to go and hear the sacred scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the word of God proclaimed and taught to them within that area where they're allowed to go. Now inside the inner buildings, that's the court of the women, the court of the men, the temple structure that contains the Holy of Holies itself. Gentiles can't go there. You see that little fence surrounding it? That's called the soreg. And a Gentile could not go past the soreg. There was a sign in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew saying, any Gentile going past this point, you will pay with your life for doing so. And the Romans allowed that. They permitted that. But the Hieron is the entire area surrounding that. And it's the court of the Gentiles where Gentile people are to, expected to be able to go and seek God. But what do they find there instead? They find a stock exchange. They find a stockyard that's absolute pandemonium. And so this courtyard, which was to be a light to the Gentiles, that light has been snuffed out by a stockyard, by a stock exchange by money changers and those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves and all of the rest. And from what we understand, even from first century references in history, their business practices were thoroughly corrupt and were thoroughly crooked. This is what Jesus finds in the Hieron when he arrives. 
And I'll make a longer story short. It's blasphemous. Absolutely corrupt and absolutely blasphemous. Slandering the very name and presence of God in that temple and slandering and holding in contempt His original purpose for that temple. That's what God in human flesh finds in His house, in His temple, when He arrives. That fateful day in the first century A.D. Now, here we obviously need just a little bit further an explanation of what Jesus finds, what's happening here. Because Jesus is furious. He is absolutely enraged and outraged by what he finds. So let me explain this to you. Obviously at this time in history, as I told you, there are Jews from all over the known world who have to travel many, many miles into Jerusalem, seek a place of lodging, seek a sacrificial animal to offer in a sacrifice, and probably have to buy there in Jerusalem all the supplies and resources they need to celebrate the Passover. Now, many times these people could not bring their own sacrificial animal hundreds of miles. So they would arrive in Jerusalem and what? Expect to buy one there. Now, you could bring your own animal, but if you brought your own animal, you would have to take it to the temple and it would have to be, quote unquote, approved by the judges, by the priests, by the Levites. And if they found your animal to be imperfect, you would have to buy their animal. And we hear that many times your animal wasn't good enough. Your animal was imperfect. So thereby you have to buy one of our animals here. And by the way, their animals cost an exorbitant price. An exorbitant price. Are you with me? Corruption. Also, all the wine, all the bread, all the food, all resources that anyone had to buy to celebrate that Passover meal, exorbitant prices were charged for those things. These poor pilgrims coming in, they were taken, flagrant, egregious advantage was taken of them. Now also this, you couldn't use your money from the outside world in the temple treasury. You had to pay the temple tax, male Jews did, a shekel and from the old Hebrew currency, and they didn't want to accept uh, Roman currency or Greco-Roman currency because it had pagan images on it. So purportedly, you had to have that money exchanged for temple-approved exchanged currency. And the exchange rates were, of course, outrageous and exorbitant. And probably every kind of con man, every kind of huckster, every kind of charlatan of every shape and size and description you can imagine was plying their trade for ill-gotten gain, probably in the court of the Gentiles and in the surrounding area. This is a spiritual religious fiasco. And it is consumed with graft and greed and corruption. That's what Jesus finds there in the temple. And I've just given you a few examples. Oh, there are many more examples that I could have given you. And so now God in the flesh arrives. God arrives in the person of the incarnate Son to confront and to judge and to purify. Verse 15, And He made a scourge of cords, and He drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, 
And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. And by the by, it is believed that the source of the corruption were the so-called religious elite. They had a bad reputation, according to historian Josephus, with the Jewish people at that time. I can guarantee you, folks, that the grafters and the grifters and those charging exorbitant prices for the money exchange and the animals and the other resources, I can guarantee you that the corrupt religious elite was getting their cut of the profits and of the proceeds. No, corruption in the establishment has not changed in 2,000 years. That is just the evil nature of fallen sinful humanity. But this day, they're going to feel the sting of the wrath of a just and holy God in the person of Jesus. And it absolutely infuriates me sometimes when I study this text that there are those who wish to water this down, to milk toast this event down, and to explain away something of what Jesus did here this day. Brothers and sisters, Please believe me, when you encounter a passage in Old Testament or New Testament in which we encounter the wrath or the righteous anger of a just and holy God, we had best sit up and pay attention and take it seriously. And take seriously what Jesus did here. And by the way, He didn't go to the Roman capital, Caesarea, on the seacoast, to give the first example of the wrath of God in Jesus, did he? He goes to Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jewish people. He goes to the temple, which is to be the holiest spot on earth at this time, to unleash the wrath of a just and holy God. Because the pursuit of God, the worship of God, totally corrupted. Totally corrupted for greed, financial gain totally contemptuous of the God who is said to dwell there in that building in the center of that sacred complex. And so Jesus makes a scourge. It's an interesting word that John uses. Fragaleon or fragellum, as the Romans would say. It is exactly the same word to explain or to describe that dreaded Roman flagellum or fragaleon that horrible cat o nine tails used by the Romans to half beat to death prisoners before their crucifixion. It is exactly the same word, exactly the same instrument. The Roman version, in which those straps are knotted together with bone and glass and pieces of metal, and that they will use this on Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. Jesus here at the beginning of His ministry this day in the temple makes a scourge of His own out of knotted ropes that He makes with His own hands. And you can imagine all the bundles and parcels of goods and all the livestock in the stockyard in the middle of the sacred temple. Well, you're not going to have to look far to find some pieces of rope. In the original Greek is He finds ropes. He finds pieces of rope and pieces of cords. And He knots the dreaded Roman cat nine tails together. Jesus Himself. And He uses it. He uses it. And there's no getting away from it. There's no watering it down. There's no explaining it away. Jesus makes up this scourge from a number of ropes, cords. 
He binds them together, and yes, he uses them as an instrument of punishment. You see the Son of God inflicting what we would call corporal punishment upon wicked people who have blasphemed God and have corrupted a sacred place. And there are those who wish to water this down by saying, oh, Jesus just probably knotted those ropes together and swung them about a bit to get attention. Or he may have used it on the backsides of some stubborn sheep or cattle who wouldn't move. To them I say, please spare me that foolish patronizing nonsense. This is the wrath of God being inflicted on evil people in the person of Jesus. The sting of that whip was felt not only on the backsides of stubborn animals. The sting of that whip was felt on the backs and backsides of evil people who deserve the judgment of God for blaspheming God in His holy temple. Sometimes we find through history, the history of the Bible and through human history, that the pain of punishment is all that evil will understand, tragically. Yes, you have here the righteous fury of a just and holy God, God the Son. This is an act and this is an event. This event, this act of Jesus this day in the temple, this will point to God's final judgment of such evil and corruption and blasphemy. Remember, at the end of human history, God the Father places the right to judge in the hands of the divine Son. Jesus arrived to judge in His first advent, and when He arrives in His second advent, His judgment will be terrifying and will be comprehensive once and for all. He actually lets these scoundrels off a little light that day in A.D. 27. Can you imagine what an event this was? <laughs> what a scene that this must have been. Imagine thousands and thousands of animals and thousands and thousands of people and hundreds of tables and booths all set up choking the court of the Gentiles so nobody could worship in the court of the Gentiles. And here comes Jesus, the wrath of God personified with that instrument of justice in His hands. And He drives all of the sheep out all of the oxen out. He probably busts open the cages of all the doves and lets the little birds free or sends them and their keepers on their way. There's all of these booths that single-handedly, we have no idea in this text if anybody helped him. Probably not on this first occasion. Pardon the expression, but Jesus is busting up this place. He is literally busting up this operation. He is smashing their booths. He is throwing their tables everywhere, taking thousands of coins and scattering them to the four winds, as we say. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the divine Son giving us a taste of Judgment Day. And can you imagine the tumult, the pandemonium, all these people, this animal stampede running around, all running for the exits as fast as they could go? Now, some people have said, well, Jesus surely didn't create a big, a big fracas because after all, the temple police were there to keep order. And by the way, the Romans, you can see the corner of the Roman fort actually attached to a corner of the temple complex. There's Roman soldiers of the garrison keeping an eye on the crowds, keeping an eye on things. Well, surely they would have gone down and arrested Jesus, wouldn't they? Well, they didn't. And here's why. I can explain to you why that didn't happen, why Jesus wasn't arrested on that day. By the way, did you know by Roman law, desecration of a temple was the death penalty? 
But Jesus wasn't arrested and charged with rioting or desecrating a temple that day. Why? I'll refer you to his quote to his mother last week. My hour has not yet come. That's the reason why not a Roman soldier or a Jewish temple cop laid a finger on him. Because according to the divine plan, his hour had not yet come. The hour of his atoning death at the hands of evil men had not yet come. That's the reason why they didn't arrest Jesus. How many times in the four Gospels do we see Jesus giving something of his true identity and his very enemies are in a foam-at-the-mouth rage, ready to lay hands on him and kill him and stone him that very minute. And what does the text say? He just simply turns about and walks away. And nobody lays a finger on him. Why? His hour had not yet come, folks. This is all part of the divine plan. He will be arrested and he will be charged unjustly and he will die according to the divine plan. The plan of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And his hour had not come that day, on that occasion. But the wrath of God came to town to visit and to warn. So yes, a full cleansing of this temple was absolutely necessary. A, few, a full purification of this sacred site is absolutely necessary. Absolutely needed. And the text says Jesus drove them all out. P-A-N-T-A in the Greek, panta. All of them. Everybody. So can you imagine what an event that was? One man doing all of this. And it probably didn't take a few minutes. It may have taken a few hours. And do not think that our Lord stopped until the job was finished. Until the job was done. By the way, folks, this is a message about the justice of God coming to a desecrated sacred site and corrupted worship. We here in America would do very well to listen to what this passage says, what this passage is all about, and apply it to our own lives, our own churches, our own parachurch organizations, our own denominations, you name it. Because allow me to say, I think we're finding and seeing exactly the same thing in so-called American Christianity as what Jesus found in the Hieron in 27 or 28 A.D. And we would do well to pay close attention to it, heed this warning, and apply it to our life and our method and modes of worship. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is justly outraged that they have turned this place, this sacred place of seeking after God, into a corrupt marketplace. He'll call it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. In the other Gospels, he poured out the coins of the money changers. The Son of God holds in complete contempt all money-making venues in God's house. Let me repeat that again. The Son of God holds in complete contempt all money-making venues in the house of God, corrupt or otherwise. He overturned their tables. Well, obviously, he didn't go about it quiet and gently, now did he? And I wonder... The text says he just scattered thousands of coins absolutely everywhere, all over the place. It's as if he's saying, this isn't your money, you're a robber, you're a thief. And he takes the money and it's as if he throws it back to the crowds, as if to say, there's your money, take it back. It was stolen from you in the first place. And by the way, when you pick it up, get it out of here. Do your business elsewhere in the streets where that business belongs. Not here in my father's house. 
which is to be a house of the proclamation of the word of God, of repentance, of humility, of prayer, and those things only, and nothing else. You see, Jesus is outraged at the location of the business, not just the corruption and lack of honesty of the business going on. And to those who are selling the doves, he said, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Dan of Thieves in the other Gospels is saying both. God's house is to be a place of true humble worship, and that only. All other such uses are corrupt and thereby are blasphemous. My father's house. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus, God the Son, is exercising his perfect right to punish in behalf of his father, God the Father. This is God the Son defending the name and honor of His Father, God the Father. And He is defending the honor of the Father's house. God's house, God's name, God's honor is not to be abused in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. And when Jesus cries out, Stop making my Father's house a house of merchandise, in the original text, John records it in the present imperative, which means what? Jesus is constantly shouting this out. This is what Jesus is proclaiming, is shouting out over and over and over for all to hear as he is doing this, as he is cleaning out this corrupt temple space. God's house is to be a house of worship, prayer, and the teaching of God's word. Have I said that before? I'm going to say it again. I need to hammer that truth home, especially in America, and what passes for American Christianity in the pursuit of God. Pardon me, I know you folks overseas have some of the same problems as well, but I'm here in America, so I have to condemn America's sins and call on America to repent. But the same is true for any house of worship that seeks the one true living God anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. God's house is to be a house of worship, a prayer, and the teaching of God's revealed truth. God's house is to be a house of worship. It is not to be a house of entertainment or business or corruption in any way. And yes, we would do well to note and to remember this. Now when Jesus says, my Father's house, he's saying something else very, very important. This is a statement of Jesus' deity. And please understand it. Jesus is explicitly referring to God as his personal Father. No pious, orthodox, devout Jew, as we would say, in the first century would dare to refer to God the Almighty as their personal Father. They would believe that was blasphemy, putting them on an equal footing with God. They could refer to God as the Father of the Jewish nation spiritually, but they would never call God their Father. That is precisely what Jesus is saying here. God the Father is His personal Father. He is equal with the Father, on an equal footing with the Father. He is one with the Father. This is an implicit, if not explicit, statement of Jesus' deity here. His equality with God, His one and only truly unique relationship to God, with God, the Son of God who is God the Son. Remember the truth of the prologue? The truth of the prologue is being proclaimed here. This is a statement of the true ultimate source for the authority for which Jesus acts. This is his authority to cleanse the temple. This is his authority to purge and judge this place and these people. God is his Father. He is a divine judge in behalf of the Father. And again, a gentle reminder, he will judge when he returns in his second advent. 
in behalf of his father. Verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Zeal for thy house will consume me. Does that sound familiar from what I read to you earlier? It is a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. By the way, I'll say it again. Wonderful theologians ahead of me have said this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a story that is so wonderful. It takes both testaments to tell. And I absolutely love it when the Holy Spirit-inspired apostolic author brings that to your attention in an explicit manner, that Jesus is fulfilling messianic prophecy, and he is doing so here, this day in the temple. Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a quote. It's a direct reference, is it not? From the book of the Psalms, Psalm 69, verse 9, a psalm of David, the great ancestor of the Messiah. Psalm 69 is a messianic hymn, as I told you earlier. Now, did the disciples recognize this at this time or later? Well, there's a question we really don't know. There are some who argue that the Spirit of God that very day and that very hour opened their eyes and revealed to them that Jesus is the Messiah of Psalm 69 and what He is doing in that temple is fulfilling prophecy there that very day. Others believe that perhaps Jesus had to explain this to them later on, or this was explained to them by the Spirit of God after the day of Pentecost. But the point is, they realized this. What they saw Jesus doing that day, whether this realization was that day or a little bit later. The important point that John is making is that the disciples did come to realize by the grace of God that Psalm 69 was being fulfilled in what Jesus was doing that day in the temple. Let me pick this apart a little more for you. It's very meaningful. First of all, the psalm applies to David. But it's a messianic prophecy which also applies to David's great descendant, the Messiah. In Psalm 69, David is suffering the reproach of wicked people because of David's consuming zeal for the sanctity of God's house. Are you getting it? It's ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Because here, Psalm 69, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus is saying this, Jesus will suffer the reproach and abuse of evil people for His zeal, His consuming zeal for God's house. His house. By the way, I was reminded, I believe, by the Lord Himself numerous times this week in exploring this passage that this is a Trinitarian work. I need to always teach the doctrine of the Trinity and never forget the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, you are primarily seeing the work of God the Son in the flesh in this gospel. But when you see Jesus at work, you are seeing God, the triune God at work. Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me explain this to you. The temple was cleansed by God the Father's plan and approval. The cleansing of the temple was carried out by the holy zeal and righteous anger of God the Son in the flesh. And the cleansing of the temple was carried out by the power and inspiration of God the Holy Spirit blazing out from God the Son in the flesh. Verse 18, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Now here, this particular reference to the Jews, this is not the Jewish people. This is not the Jewish nation. He's not, John is not talking about all of the hundreds of Jewish people who are probably running in the pandemonium to get out of the way or to get out of there. No. This is John's, most of the time that he uses the expression, the Jews, this is a shorthand expression of the Apostle John's that he uses for the corrupt Jewish religious quasi-political establishment of Jesus' day, of Jesus' time. This 
this is the priest. This is the high... Basically, Annas and Caiaphas are a religious mafia at this time. This is really what they are. They're probably involved in this. Their cronies or lackeys are involved in this. There are corrupt priests and Levites that are involved in this. There are members of the Sanhedrin that are corrupted in this. And so as the dust begins to settle, as you can imagine, they all form this pack, this rampaging mob, to swarm Jesus and surround him and demand some sort of retribution or, or answer as to why he dares to do such a thing. You can just imagine what that was like as well. What sign do you show us? Now, how ironic is that? What was last week's encounter all about? A sign. A semeon. A miracle, an event, which pointed to even greater future realities and which pointed to the true identity and mission of the Messiah. We had a semeon. We had a sign, a beautiful sign, a wonderful sign, and all that it meant and all that it pointed to in a humble little village to the north in Galilee. And yes, the word for sign there is Simeon, exactly the same word that John uses for the signs of Jesus, beginning at Cana. They should have been at Cana. They should have been at Cana. They would have seen a sign. But folks, they, they have a sign happening right in front of them, right in front of their faces, right in front of their, under their very noses this very day. And they're too spiritually deaf and dumb, blind and spiritually dead to see it, to get it. The times of the Messiah have come. And there will be more signs and greater signs than these to come. But you see, their question is corrupt. Their demand is corrupt. It's wrong-headed. It's wrong-hearted. They're really saying, who do you think you are doing this? Who do you think you are defying this? Who do you think you are challenging this? Who do you think you are busting up our up operation, interrupting our cash flow? Who do you think you are disturbing our status quo? How dare you? Who do you think you are? This is an insurrection. We'd better form a committee and investigate this and punish this. Show us some spectacular wonder work, miracle, or display of power to prove you have the right, the authority to do this. You see, Jesus has become in one day, in a few short hours, out of the blue, pardon the American expression, He's become a threat to them. He's become a challenge to them. He has exposed them. He is condemning their corrupt lives and their corrupt ways. Jesus is a very inconvenient and unwelcome reminder of the judgment of a just and a holy God. Whose house that property really belongs to. And so they demand signs. Isn't it interesting? And isn't it significant that the first of Jesus' signs was where? At Cana. A little humble, blue-collar village up in rural Galilee in the hill country. The first of His signs was there. The first of His signs was to humble people. The first of his signs was devout people. The first of his signs was to a little family, well, perhaps not so little, family village wedding. He didn't reveal the first of his signs to these corrupt, arrogant, self-proclaimed elite frauds. How dare they demand a sign from God in his house? How dare they corrupt his house? But you see, William Hendrickson... <laughs> 
in his commentary, he doesn't pull any punches. He says their demand is foolish and it is stupid. They are totally spiritually blind and deaf. This temple cleansing is itself a sign, folks. This temple cleansing was and is in and of itself a sign, a simeon. Didn't I tell you earlier? It's a fulfillment of Psalm 69. It's a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple and cleanse the sons of Levi. What more of a sign do you want than that? Messianic Scripture fulfilled in front of your very eyes. How's that for a sign? They of all people, the religious establishment, they of all people should have seen what was happening and perceived what was happening and interpreted correctly what was happening. They of all people should have perceived the divine authority with and upon Jesus that day. However, the demand of the religious establishment is not only foolish, it is evil. It is evil. They are totally unwilling to repent. They are totally unwilling to repent. They may even be so corrupted by this time that they can't repent. They may already be past the point of no return with only the judgment of God to look forward to. They're totally unwilling to see and admit and confess their wrongdoing. The wrong that's going on here, that's, that's happening here. It's egregious. It should be obvious. They should have been deeply ashamed of the graft and the greed and the corruption. But oh no. Oh no, no, no. Absolutely not. No. Instead of demanding of Jesus that He prove He has the right to pronounce and inflict judgment upon what was going on, they should have been confessing their egregious sins, they should have been repenting, and they should be changing. They should be bringing reformation, true reformation and change to that house of worship. And here's an amazing irony, another absolutely amazing irony. There's hope for little common people like us. Here's another example of the Lord God Almighty showing grace and mercy to the humble. And He will bring down the arrogant and the proud. How many times do we see that from Genesis to Revelation? We're seeing in our studies of 1 Samuel. Right? Remember Hannah's prayer? Mary's Magnificat? He raises up the humble. He will judge the arrogant and the haughty. You see it here. Let me explain. The Apostle John tells us that the disciples... Blue-collar fishermen from a rural province. Men whom the religious elite would hold in absolute contempt. To the disciples, to the disciples of Jesus, they are gifted to see Jesus' action and they see and realize sacred Scripture being fulfilled in Jesus. The corrupt religious elites see Jesus in action and all they see is a threat which must be destroyed. They are totally clueless. Totally clueless in ignorant, self-imposed darkness. That's a warning. Dire warning. Verse 19, our closing verse for the day. And please, everybody, wake up and stay with me. Because this is one of the most important points of all. I will begin verse 19 here in conclusion. But next week we will return here to verse 19 and proceed from there. Because what Jesus says about Himself here in verse 19 
It is enormous. And it's one of the most important things in this passage. Short verse, but oh my, is it packed. Is it loaded with meaning. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's your answer. There's your authority. There's the sign that you seek. It's a wonderful statement. Wonderful statement. This response of Jesus here. Very profound, packed with meaning. And you notice Jesus' replies immediate. Must have stunned them. Must have, must have taken them surprised. Must have taken them completely off guard again. Jesus unhesitatingly and he immediately answers back. He by directly, yes, he is directly stating proof for his authority. Destroy. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Stay with me, this is important. The word destroys luo in the Greek. You can apply it to a human being, an object, or a building. It can mean to kill, to break down or destroy a human being. It can mean to tear down or wreck an object. It can mean to dissolve a relationship. It can mean to dissolve a building. So it can be used to kill a person, describe the death of a person, and the tearing down or death of a building. Destroy luo this temple. Now, the first word that John gives you for temple in this text is hieron. And I explained that to you, didn't I? Yes, ad nauseum, some of you are saying. Jesus doesn't say hieron. Jesus says, destroy this naos. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Do you remember what the naos is? The Naos is the most sacred building on the temple site itself. The Naos, according to Jew or pagan, was the Sanctum Sanctorum, the inner sanctuary, the very physical space where the deity was said and believed to dwell. In this case, Tear down this naos. Tear down the most holy of holy places. The place where God Almighty comes in His localized presence to deal with His people. You, you tear down the holy of holies. And in three days I will raise it up again. That is tremendous. That is of amazing significance. What an incredible thing to say. And I wonder if when Jesus said that, He was not physically gesturing to Himself. And these evil people, spiritually dead, still didn't get it. But we'll get to that next week. The point being now, what He says here is so remarkable. Oh yes, I'm afraid folks, we're going to have to return to this conversation and the meaning of this conversation next week in order to do full justice to what Jesus says here. But what this statement of Jesus should tell you for now, what this text of Jesus, the statement of Jesus tells us now, till next week, please think and meditate upon what Jesus says here in verse 19. And we'll return to it. When Jesus speaks of this temple, this naos, John tells us that he is referring to his own body. Are you putting this together by now? He is calling, he is referring to his own body as naos. That's amazing. Jesus is standing in the very presence of that structure when he says this. He is standing in the very shadow 
of the temple naos, the holy of holy place, where God Almighty is said to dwell. You see what he's doing? Jesus is saying, Jesus is implying he is the real naos. His very body is the real naos. Jesus himself, his very person, his very body is the real holy of holies where God really dwells. Not that building standing over there, as beautiful as it is. God dwells not over there in that building that you love and revere so much. God dwells here, Jesus is saying. Wherever Jesus walks, wherever He sits, wherever He lies down, wherever He is, that place is the Holy of Holies, where the personal presence of God dwells. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the naos, the most holy place where God has come to dwell, to visit his people, to visit humanity. Remember the truth of the prologue? The divine word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the ultimate visitation and revelation of God to humanity. He's saying, I am the ultimate most holy place where God has now come to dwell with humanity. And to this we will return next week. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank You for this beautiful divine plan so perfectly carried out by You, O Father, Son, and Spirit, faithfully recorded witnessed by many, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Thank you for creating us and redeeming us to be part of this magnificent plan. Yes, in the deep, profound, and mysterious spiritual way, we are a part of events that took place 2,000 years ago. Help us to know our place in the divine plan now and to look forward to the completion of the divine plan in the future. Thank you for sending God the Son to be the ultimate Passover lamb, to cover our sins so that we can survive the judgment to come of a just and holy God. Help us, Lord God, to appreciate and honor you and places where we worship you and are to seek you and to keep those places and those times and those events pure, to not blaspheme you, but to honor you, to not corrupt your worship, but to elevate worship all given to you. Bless this message here throughout our nation and throughout the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. To dismiss, let's...